Every weekday, NPR's best political reporters come to you on the NPR Politics Podcast to explain the big news coming out of Washington, the campaign trail, and beyond. We don't just want to tell you what happened. We tell you why it matters. Join the NPR Politics Podcast every single afternoon to understand the world through political eyes. This is Fresh Air. I'm David B. and Cooley. John Mellencamp has been performing and writing songs for four and a half decades. His hits in the 80s include Jack and Diane and Small Town. At Obama's inaugural celebration at the Lincoln Memorial, Mellencamp sang his song Pink Houses, the one with the refrain, Ain't That America for You and Me. His song, This Is Our Country, first became famous when it was used in a Chevrolet ad. John Mellencamp is a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, a Grammy winner, and a member of the Songwriters Hall of Fame. His new album, his 25th, is called Orpheus Descending, and it reflects on many of the issues facing Americans today, like massive social inequality and gun violence in the song, Hey God. Terry spoke with John Mellencamp in 2009 when his album called Life, Death, Love, and Freedom was released. Here's the opening track from that album, a song called Longest Day. Seems like once upon a time ago I was where I was supposed to be Vision was true and my heart was too. There was no end to what I could dream. I walked like a hero into the setting sun. Everyone called out my name. Death to me was just a mystery. I was too busy raising a game. Nothing lasts forever The best efforts don't always pay Sometimes you get sick and you don't get better That's when life is short Even in its longest days John Mellencamp, welcome to Fresh Air. I, I have to say, you know, I just wasn't prepared for this song that opens the new CD. It's just so much about mortality and things that aren't necessarily ever going to get better. When I first started listening to the song, I think I was kind of depressed. It was the middle of winter, and it really spoke to me. Sometimes you really need songs like this, so so thank you for writing it. Well, <laughs> thank you. Uh, the song, uh, The song actually was... Uh, that line, my grandmother lived to be a uh, hundred years old, and it's a funny—it's not a funny ha-ha story, but this—this this is how the line came about. I used to go see her in the afternoons, and uh, sometimes she'd make me lay in bed with her. You know, I was like forty-five years old or something, and my hundred-year-old grandmother. But she called me buddy, and she'd go, "Buddy, come come and lay down with me," and I'd go, "Okay." So I'd lay in bed with her, and. Uh, and we'd talk sometimes, and, and you know, she was great up until about 99, and then she started getting kind of dementia and stuff like that. And uh, one afternoon, I was laying in bed with her, and she said, uh, let's pray. And I said, okay. And so she starts praying, and she says, God, you know, Buddy and I are ready to come home. And I went, whoa, wait a minute, <laughs> Grandma. <laughs> Uh, you're ready to come home. Buddy's only 45. He's not ready. 
And then she turned at me and looked at me right in the face. And her face all of a sudden looked like a little girl. And she goes, buddy, life is short in its longest days. And I always remembered that line. And I thought, well, surely someday I'll be able to work that line into a song. And uh, that's how that song started. Now, I mean, you're obviously feeling that song that we just heard, Longest Days, but it's also great song craft at at the risk of kind of killing the lyric. Let me just, like, read a few lines. Nothing lasts forever. Your best efforts don't always pay. Sometimes you get sick and you don't get better. That's why life is short, even in its longest days. Can you talk a little bit about your process of writing a song like this? You were telling us that the main hook, the Life is Short line basically came from your grandmother. But what about the rest of it? Well, you know, as I've matured uh, as a songwriter, uh, I realize that if it's out there, it's mine. You know, everything I see and hear, I don't care if Shakespeare wrote it or if Tennessee Williams wrote it or if Bob Dylan wrote it or I see it on a, on a sitcom. If I hear words, they're mine. And so I will take take ideas from any place, anywhere, anytime, and uh, life has become a song to me. I'm always looking for a song. And then what happens is, is that I'll sit down, and if I have to labor over the song, generally the song is not very good. My best songs are just given to me from someplace uh, outside myself, uh, and I think it's because I have thought about uh, the, a particular topic for so long that eventually uh, it assembles itself in my head or in heaven, one of the two, sometimes in hell, uh, and they just kind of come to me all in, all in a thought. Sometimes it's like the longest days. I got up one morning and the song came to me in, in a complete thought. Hmm. All I had to do was get up and write it down. There was no laboring about rhymes or melody or any of that stuff. It just was, there it is. And when that happens, you know, you just kind of got to look up and go, thank you. Right. Well, my guest is John Mellencamp, and his new CD is called Life, Death, Love, and Freedom. John, you're in your studio, and you have your guitar with you, so I'm going to ask you if you could sing another song pertaining to mortality from the new CD, and this is called A Ride Back Home. Hey, Jesus, can you give me a ride back home? I've been out here in this world too long on my own I won't bother you no more if you can just get me in the door Hey Jesus can you give me a ride back home When I started out I was so young and so strong I just let it roll off my back when things went wrong Now it's starting to get to me All of this inhumanity Hey Jesus, can you give me a ride back home? Thank you. And that's John Mellencamp performing a song from his new CD, Life, Death, Love, and Freedom. Um, do you mind if I ask what kind of religion you were brought up with? Like what church was like when you were young? Well, my grandmother, back to my grandmother, made sure that I went to church every Sunday. And uh, she'd come over and pick us boys up, and we would go to the Nazarene church. And back then, that was about as close to um, heaven as I ever got because uh, uh, just the time to be able to spend with her and she was very, very religious. But see, you know, I've, I've, I'm, I'm in. I, don't, I don't, don't even worry about it because before she died, she said, listen, buddy, when you, when you die, I'll be waiting on you and you're in. So I figure, you know, I don't got nothing. <laughs> I got nothing to do. She's taking care of it for me. So if there is a heaven, I'm in. So I don't even think about it. Although she did say, buddy, you're going to have to stop that cussing. <laughs> but other than that, you know, if I, can, if, I can, if I can just clean up my language, I'm pretty sure I'm, I'm, I'm in the Golden Gates. So uh, I trust her and I believe her. And so 
Yeah, I grew up Nazarene. That's that's where I went to church, and then finally about seventeen or eighteen, I just re- I just kind of quit going. And now? And now, oh, the church would fall down if I walked in. <laughs> I'm not a uh, big advocate of uh, organized American religion. Here's a, another mortality question, if you don't mind. You know, as 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 I've been saying, there's a bunch of songs on the new CD that are about mortality. You had um, heart surgery in the no, no, in the nineteen nineties, no, no, right? No, a heart attack. No, 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 no. yeah. A heart attack I had a I had a mild heart attack because I smoke and because I have high cholesterol. And for ten years before that, the doctors were telling me, John, you need to get on cholesterol medicine. And my answer was always the same: Am I all right now? And they go, Yeah, you're all right now, but you're heading for disaster. Okay, well, I'll deal with disaster when it when it gets here. Well, it got here. So I have no one to blame or anything like that uh, about having uh, a heart malfunction. But I did not have open-heart surgery or anything like that. So this was more than 10 years ago. and Actually, it was 1994. Mm-hmm. So you, you weren't writing songs like this then, were you? Yes, I was. I've you been were? writing. Yeah, yeah. Uh, see, the problem is, is that music is so... Uh, uh, you know, during the 80s and the 70s, and you know, the songs and the arrangements of the songs had to be a certain way to get on the radio, and it really screwed up songs. It really messed up. I've been writing about this stuff forever. I've been writing about mortality. I've been writing about, you know, I only write four songs. Come on, I, I, got, the, I got the same four <laughs> songs, and I just rewrite them, you know, 50 times, but I got four topics that I cover. You know, I cover race, and I cover what, you, what you're calling mortality. And then I, you know, sometimes write about girls, but I'm too old to write about that now. So, uh, you know, I only got a few things I write about. But if you if you listen to songs that I've written, some people ain't no damn good. They, you know, that song is about mortality. When the walls come crumbling down, it was about the government. So, because of the music and the of the the lightness and the arrangements of the music of the of that time were of a certain ilk and even got worse in the 90s, uh, the songs, to be able to be on the radio, really had to take on a candy-coated appeal. Pink Houses was always uh, anti-Reagan, Reaganomics. Uh, People love the Ain't That America. So, you know, people take from songs only what they want to hear. And, you know, I'm just like everybody else. So you kind of got to lift up the veil of a lot of songwriters' songs to really realize what's being said. Well, well, let's take, I think, an excellent example of what you're talking about, which is This Is Our Country. And a lot of people know that song from the Chevrolet Silverado ad. And it sounds like, you know, an American anthem when you just hear... The chorus. The chorus. But I'm going to ask you to sing a verse from it that... It gives a very different impression that one what people might have walked away from from the ad. And this is can you can you do the verse that goes um, and there's room enough here for religion to forgive and room enough here for science to live. Well, there's room enough here. Let me see if I can do it. Well, there's room enough here for science. I got to get my mouth. I take it. No, take it out. <laughs> Hold on. All right, here we go. Well, there's room enough here for science to live And there's room enough here for religion to forgive And try to understand all the people of this land This is our country Yeah, uh, I think that, you know, simply because uh, it was uh, my one and only uh, television commercial uh, the, that outraged a lot of people, and uh, this what the song is really about was missed. But you know, that's I, I knew that was going to happen. But I really had no uh, idea how much that song was going to be played. Um, this is our country. is is kind of like a plea to end the culture wars, to be inclusive, to yeah. respect each yes. other. Yes. Do you feel it became an anthem for something else in the minds of many people? Oh, I don't care. I mean, it became an anthem for Chevrolet, I think. <laughs> right. I mean, because that's how they discovered the song. Because they couldn't discover the song in, in the way that they discovered uh, Pink Houses or the way that they discovered, 
you know, I need a lover. They, they, it's impossible to, do, you know, to discover so, a song that way. But what went through your mind when Chevrolet asked you to use it? Did you think immediately this would be a good idea? Did you have reservations about it? Oh, listen, I had spoken out against I was the same way that you are. And I still don't think that an artist should have to have to get involved with, uh, with, with Wall Street on any, on any level. That's not what I really do. I don't write songs for commercials. But I did this because I thought, well... Uh, perhaps they are right. I had so many people saying, John, you have turned down fortunes and fortunes of money. And now is the time. The music business has changed. Nobody is, your songs can't grow from the ground up anymore. Mm-hmm. So go from it from a different angle. So that's, that's, that's what we did. And, and what did you learn from the experience? Uh, oh, I learned that, I, that, that an artist shouldn't have to do this. This is not what, what my songs are about. But I also learned that Chevrolet was a better record company than Columbia. <laughs> because they got your song out there. Well, because no, because they yes, that and partially and but because they also what they said they were going to do, they did. They kept their word. Which was well, record companies never keep their word. That's the point of the whole conversation. Uh-huh, okay. Record companies they were going to do this, this and this and this and they never did any of it. Um, now, I also want to talk with you about Pink Houses, which is the song that John McCain had briefly used in his campaign. And um, we'll talk about what happened with that. But, but play, play the hook from it so everybody knows the song. Let's see how it goes. Ain't that America? Okay, here we go. Ain't that America for you and me? Ain't that America something to see, baby? Ain't that America, home of the free, yeah Little pink houses for you and me So when, when, when you found out John McCain was using it in his campaign and you are a lifelong Democrat, how did you decide to handle it? I wouldn't say I'm a lifelong Democrat. I'm, I'm very liberal. Okay, right. I, you can vote li- whatever you want, but you're very liberal. I'm very liberal. Got yes, it. I'm yeah. very liberal. Um, well, what what happened was is that uh, I called uh, I called up my uh, publicity guy, a guy named Bob Merlis. I said, Bob said, you know, McCain's using your song, and I said, well, he can use it if he wants to, but you probably ought to write him a letter and say, you know, uh, not only, you know, that you guys are using it, but so is Barack Obama, so is John Edwards, so is uh, Hillary Clinton. And you should understand that Mellencamp is very liberal, and do you really think that it's pushing your agenda in the right direction? I mean, you're just really falling in line with all the other uh, liberal candidates. Uh, maybe you guys should rethink uh, using the song. We didn't tell them not to use it. We just wrote a letter that said, you know, why don't you guys, you guys might want to rethink about using this song. And they, they quit using it. When you write songs like um, Pink Houses or This Is Our Country or R-O-C-K in the USA, do you think I'm going to sit down and write an anthem? <laughs> no, not really, because if you hear me play these songs... I like you just from it. They're not anthems at all. They're folk songs. That's true. I mean, you know, uh, it, like I just played uh, the chorus of Pink Houses. That's not an anthem. That's a folk song. But see, that's what I was talking about. And all the songs that you named were music from the 80s that had to be, you know, dressed up in a certain way or they weren't going to be on the radio. If I, like, you know, I'm going to go out on uh, tour and I'm going to play just me and acoustic guitar and all of these songs take on a whole different feeling or meaning uh, when you hear me playing by myself because they're not wrapped up in the music of the time. Mm-hmm. They're just songs. I'll give you a good example. Hold on. Listen. I need a lover that won't drive me crazy. I need a lover that won't drive me mad. I need a lover that won't drive me crazy. I need a girl like one I ain't never had. It's a whole different song. Yeah. Mm-hmm. It's a whole different song than the song that you grew up hearing and, and you know, I grew up playing. But uh, that's what the music of the time required. But don't get me wrong, I'm not complaining. I was very fortunate. I had a lot of hit records. I'm just saying that, you know, trying to be an artist inside the music business has always been challenging for me. 
John Mellencamp speaking to Terry Gross in 2009. We'll hear more of Terry's conversation with Mellencamp in the second half of the show. And Justin Chang reviews the new Wes Anderson movie, Asteroid City, and I'll review the new season of the Netflix anthology series, Black Mirror. I'm David Biancooley, and this is Fresh Air. This message comes from NPR sponsor Train. A high-performing business takes a high-performing building. Reach organizational goals while enhancing systems and reducing emissions with Train Energy Services. Explore their consultative approach at train.com slash energy services. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race and identity don't begin or end with the news cycle. That's because we know race and identity impact every person and influence every story. We're getting into all of it with new voices each week on the Code Switch podcast from NPR. Numbers that explain the economy. We love them at the Indicator from Planet Money. And on Fridays, we discuss indicators in the news, like job numbers, spending, the cost of food, sometimes all three. So my indicator is about why you might need to bring home more bacon to afford your eggs. I'll be here all week. Wrap up your week and listen to the Indicator podcast from NPR. Hey, this is Seth Kelly, producer at Fresh Air. And this is Molly C.V. Nesper, digital producer at Fresh Air. We co-write the weekly Fresh Air newsletter. It's recaps of the week, staff recommendations, gems from the archive, and a glimpse at who's coming on the show soon, all in one place. It's also a fun peek behind the scenes. What goes into the producing and editing of the interviews, and a chance to meet the people who make Fresh Air. You can subscribe by going to whyy.org slash fresh air. You'll hear from us soon. Now, back to the show. This is Fresh Air. I'm David B. Cooley, professor of TV studies at Rowan University, back with more of Terry's interview with John Mellencamp. His new album, Orpheus Descending, comes out today. He recorded it with his Indiana band in his studio near Bloomington. Mellencamp grew up in Seymour, a small town in Indiana. Could, could you maybe play um, an excerpt of a song that you feel was like in your DNA because cause you heard it and loved it when you were young? Either a song that you discovered on your own or a song from your father's collection that's just kind of in your blood? Let me see. Come gather around people wherever you roam And admit that the waters around you have grown And soon you'll sink like a stone Anyway, uh, my brother had that, brought that record home in 1963, 1962, whatever year it came out And uh, it made a huge impression on me, uh, that Bob Dylan fella Yeah, what impact did Dylan have on you when you were young? Well, I mean, he was uh, the uh, ultimate songwriter. You know, I, I never even even considered writing songs until I was much older, because I, I was a singer in a rock band. You know, I was in a bar. You remember the mid early 70s, mid-70s? There were so many rock bars. You know, and I was one of those guys, you know, playing and, and singing, and there was no reason for me to write a song, because there were so many beautiful songs out, and... You know, we would, I, in one hand, you know, I had Bob Dylan, and in the other hand, I had Iggy Pop, you know, and we would go from from a Dylan song to a Stooges song all in one set. 
So you moved from Indiana to New York to get close to the record industry. That's not true. No? Okay, go nope. ahead. No. I moved from Indiana to London. Oh. And I lived in London in 1977 and 78. I mean, it's a boring story. It's the same old story you've heard a million times. Anyway, I go to New York, uh, and I wanted to take a look at the New York Art Student League, or I wanted to get a record deal. I didn't really care which. Is it going to be a painter or a, or a songwriter? Uh, since the Art Student League cost a lot of money, that, that was out because I had no money. And I went there, and uh, it wasn't this simple, but I got a record deal pretty rapidly. And then I made a, a couple records that were terrible. I was managed by the same guy that managed Bowie. And he was he tried to to recreate me into an American David Bowie. It just didn't work, and him and I fought all the time. And that's where Johnny Cougar came from. And all was that, that his idea? Yeah. Yeah, it was a terrible idea. I told him at the time it was a terrible idea. And, of course, he didn't like that. You know, he wasn't going to take that from snappy young brats such as myself. You know, uh, he was the uh, P.T. Barnum of the whole thing. He created David Bowie and reminded me of that all the time. But anyway, so I was with him for, you know, I made a couple records with him that were terrible, terrible, not worth listening, not worth looking at. And then I met a manager who was a shyster, and we... He he said, you know, I can't get can't get a record deal here in the United States for you, but if you come to London, I can get one in Europe. So we moved to to London, and I lived in London for two years, and it was a great experience and uh, eye opening for you know to move from Seymour, Indiana, to London, England, and be living on right in Chelsea, and the whole punk rock thing was just starting to explode, and uh, there I was with an acoustic guitar. <laughs> right. Um, so it was really hard for you to get rid of the cougar thing, wasn't it? Oh, it's still, it's, it's, it's never, go, it, it, it'll never leave. I still walk down the street and people will say, hey, John Cougar, you know, I hear it all the time. Or John Cougar, Mellencamp, I'll be introduced that way. But, you know, it's, that's what it's, that's what it was, you know. I mean, that's, that's what people, you know, knew me as at that time. And, uh, and, and that's, you know, that's just the fate. That's, you know, that's the way God handed it out to me. And that's the cards I'm dealt. And so I deal with it. Let me ask you about one of your early hits, and this is Jack and Diane from 1982. There's a great line in that, um, life goes on even after the thrill of living is gone. Can you talk about how that line came to you? Well, actually, uh, they're putting together a a box set of my songs, and uh, the guy producing it, this guy's leaving no stone unturned, so... uh, he found a song that I had written before Jack and Diane called Jenny at 16 <laughs> that had some of the same lines from Jack and Diane in it that I had abandoned that song, Jenny at 16, and turned it into Jack and Diane. And in the original writing of Jack and Diane, he discovered that Jack was black. So even back then I was talking about interracial things, but for some reason or another had abandoned that idea. So Jack and Diane was originally a, a, about an interracial couple, but I guess in 1981, I think maybe I decided maybe this is a little too pushing it too far, because you know this country is a pretty racist place, and uh, so particularly in '81. Can, can you do a few bars of Jack and Diane? Uh, yeah, hold on. Little ditty about Jack and Diane Two man kids growing up in the heartland Jackie gonna be a football star Diane's debutante in the backseat of Jackie's car Second chili dog outside taste freeze Diane sitting on Jackie's lap got his hands between the knees Jackie said, hey, Diane, let's run off behind the shade of trees. Dribble off those Barbara Brooks, girl, let me do what I please. Oh, yeah, life goes on. Long after the thrill of living is gone. Oh, yeah, see, life goes on. Long after the thrill of living is gone. They walk on. That's it. Did, did you know when you were writing that that it would be really good to put in like details in the song, like like the tasty freeze or the, the chili dogs? I mean, it, like story writers think of details like that. Songwriters don't always. Uh, well, I don't know. You know, I I 
I don't know. I can say this very crudely to you. Uh, a lot of those songs back then were not really written in my mind. They were written, you know, uh, below my belt. They were songs that were only uh, only emotional. There was no... I wasn't sophisticated enough to think, oh, I should put a detail in here. Mm-hmm. You know, I was, it was, I was a guy in a band in a bar. And, you know, I saw what people did and partook in what people did in those bars. I was part of that scene in the Midwest. And it was a, you know, it was a rough-ass crowd some nights and some nights it wasn't, you know. So uh, that's where songs like Lonely All Night came from. Music was a sideline for me at that time. <laughs> You know, all my songs are written below my belt. And then, and as I got older, they kind of raised up to my head and became more of, of you know, you should pay attention to what you're writing because people are actually listening. Um, can I close by asking you to do a song that you did not write, that you really love, that's by somebody else? Okay, I will play a song that I have played at every party Oh, great. Okay. That uh, This is my party song, you know, when they hand me a guitar and say, John, play something. Everybody's laughing at the early bird cafe. I've been hidden there since yesterday, and I believe I've lost my way. Charlotte's there in Albany, and Billy's there in Suede. There's money in their pockets, all the dues are paid. And there's wine on every table And there's food on every plate Well, I hope I get there pretty soon Before it gets too late Well, I ran on down the road a while To the other side of town My clothes were getting wrinkled And my socks were falling down But I could not stop to pull them up In fear that I'd be late So I kept on running down the road Until I saw the gate of the early bird cafe Glowing golden like a sun Everybody kept on singing Can come on and we just begun Well I ran right in and I sat right down And I ordered up some wine My talk was fast and clever And the women all were fine Charlotte asked me where I'd been With jade and ivory eyes And I told her I'd been hung up With some beggar in disguise Well, she laughed like temple bells She kissed me on the cheek and said You know, it's hard to be alive sometimes But it's easy to be dead I feel like I should know that song, and I and I don't. Who's tell tell me something about the song? Uh, it's an old folk song, and it was originally recorded by. Uh, might even been written by a band called Jerry Hahn Brotherhood, which hmm. was a a, a band uh, that I saw play probably in 1968, opening up for um, Frank Zappa and the Mothers of Invention. And they played that song, and I went, wow. Um, it's been great to talk with you. I, I really appreciate your doing this, and thank you for playing for us. I think it was just really generous of you. I really appreciate it. It was my pleasure. John Millencamp speaking with Terry Gross in 2009. Coming up, Justin Chang reviews the new Wes Anderson movie, Asteroid City. This is Fresh Air. There's a lot to stay on top of on any given day. You might have to break things down into smaller pieces in order to keep up. That's why we're introducing the new Consider This newsletter from NPR. Every weekday, we sift through all the day's news and bring you one big story in an easily skimmable format. So you become a mini expert on a major topic each day. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. What's happening on NPR podcasts? More neighborhoods and more perspectives. The more of the world that you hear, the more you hear the world as it really is. NPR podcasts. More voices. All ears. Find NPR wherever you get your podcasts. Feel like the world is on fire? Shortwave is your antidote. We find joy and beauty in the science of the planet we live on. 
how people are taking action in the face of climate change, the many weird and wonderful ways animals have adapted to a changing world in the past and present, and how technology is pushing us forward. Listen now to the Shortwave Podcast from NPR. Instead of scrolling mindlessly, engage mindfully with the NPR app. With a mix of on-demand news, stories from this station, and your favorite podcast, you can relax without shutting off your brain. Download the NPR app today. This is Fresh Air. The new Wes Anderson movie Asteroid City, which recently premiered at the Cannes Film Festival, opens in theaters this week. The film features a large ensemble cast led by Jason Schwartzman, Scarlett Johansson, and Tom Hanks, and takes place in a small 1950s desert town that's hosting an astronomy convention for kids. Our film critic, Justin Chang, has this review. Asteroid City is one of the most beautiful-looking movies Wes Anderson has ever made, and that's certainly saying something. Anderson is beloved, and sometimes derided, for his extraordinarily meticulous world-building, and here he and his longtime production designer, Adam Stockhausen, have outdone themselves. Asteroid City is a 1950s southwestern desert town, population 87, that's packed with gorgeous retro details, a diner, a motorcourt motel, a one-pump filling station. There are also a few tourist attractions, including a giant crater left behind by a 3,000-year-old asteroid, and an observatory that hosts an annual Junior Stargazers convention. But the movie is also catnip for stargazers of a different kind. Like many of the director's films, it boasts an enormous ensemble that includes several of his regular collaborators, including Jason Schwartzman, Tilda Swinton, Willem Dafoe, and Jeff Goldblum. There are also a few A-list newcomers like Tom Hanks and Scarlett Johansson, assuming you don't count her voice work in the animated Isle of Dogs. In Asteroid City, Johansson plays a movie star named Midge Campbell, who's like a cross between Ava Gardner and Marilyn Monroe. She's come to town with her gifted teenage daughter, Dinah, who's receiving an award at the astronomy convention. In this scene, Midge is eating breakfast at the diner when she hears Augie Steenbeck, a photographer played by Schwartzman, take a picture of her. You took a picture of me. Uh Uh-huh. Why? I'm a photographer. You didn't ask permission. I never ask permission. Why not? Because I work in trenches, battlefields, and combat zones. Really? Uh Uh-huh. You mean you're a war photographer? Mostly. Sometimes I cover sporting events. My name is Augie Steenbeck. Mm-hmm. What are you going to do with that? That picture. Huh. Well, if it's any good, I guess I'll try to sell it to a magazine, now that you mention it. Midge Campbell, eating a waffle. Augie is actually the movie's protagonist, and Schwartzman brings a real soulfulness to his deadpan melancholy line readings. Augie has recently lost his wife, a tragedy he hasn't found the courage to share with their four kids, including his own astronomy-loving teenage son, Woodrow. Tom Hanks gives a sweetly curmudgeonly turn as Augie's father-in-law, who doesn't like Augie much, but has come to Asteroid City to support the family and spend time with his grandkids. Child geniuses and cross-generational conflicts are a staple of Anderson movies like Moonrise Kingdom, The Royal Tenenbaums, and especially Rushmore, the film in which Schwartzman made his acting debut. As usual, there's also some inconvenient romance. Woodrow develops a crush on Dinah, just as Augie begins flirting with Midge, a tough-minded kindred spirit who's experienced her share of loss. Eventually, strange things start to happen— Mushroom clouds erupt in the distance, where atomic bomb tests are being conducted. Later, Asteroid City receives a surprise visitor. Let's call it a close encounter of the whimsical kind, that will force everyone in town to confront their fears of the unknown. But that's not even the strangest thing happening in this movie. Here's where I should mention the extremely intricate framing device that Anderson has devised. We're informed at the outset that Asteroid City 
is actually a 1950s play that's being produced for television, and that production is basically the movie we're watching. But periodically we'll see, in black and white footage, what's going on behind the scenes. Edward Norton turns up as the playwright, clearly modeled on Tennessee Williams. Adrian Brody plays an Elia Kazan-style director, and all the characters we've met in the fictional Asteroid City turn out just to be actors, trying to figure out how to play their parts at a moment when old Hollywood theatricality is giving way to the more psychologically grounded method style. It's a radical moment for the movie industry, as cataclysmic in its own way as a visit from an alien. Anderson's narrative formulations get more elaborate with every movie. His previous one, The French Dispatch, was an ode to The New Yorker, structured like an actual issue of The New Yorker. The first time I saw Asteroid City, its play within a TV show within a movie conceit felt too tortured by half. But I warmed to it more on second viewing. Anderson's surfaces can be maddeningly busy, but the ideas he buries within those surfaces tend to reward a closer look. And there's something undeniably poignant about the ultra-rigidity of his style. It's as if he were showing us how little control his characters have, how hard it is for Augie and Midge, and the actors playing them, to cope with the random setbacks and tragedies of life. If Asteroid City leaves us with anything, it's the idea that scientists and artists may have more in common than they appear. The desire to create a work of art, or to unlock the mysteries of the universe, spring from the same creative impulse. By the end of the movie, none of these mysteries have been solved, but Augie and his family, at least, have reached a place of understanding. Amid so many significant scientific milestones, Anderson suggests, connecting with another person might still be the grandest human achievement of all. Justin Chang is the film critic for the L.A. Times. He reviewed the new Wes Anderson movie, Asteroid City. Coming up, I review the new season of the Netflix anthology series, Black Mirror. This is Fresh Air. It's Been a Minute is a culture show you don't want to miss. Every week, we help you see the culture angle behind the headlines, the forces behind the trends, and the thinkers behind the next big thing. Tune in for the sharp cultural analysis and captivating interviews. Listen now to the It's Been a Minute podcast from NPR. On the TED Radio Hour, in the middle school cafeteria, Tai Tashiro always sat with his equally nerdy buddies. The socially awkward kids who were the furthest thing from cool. And he often wondered, Why am I so socially awkward and what am I going to do about that? Now Tai is a psychologist and expert on awkwardness, and he has some answers. That's on the TED Radio Hour from NPR. From the campaigns to the conventions, from now through Election Day and beyond, the NPR Politics Podcast has you covered. As Joe Biden and Donald Trump square off again, we bring you the latest news from the trail and dive deep into each candidate's goals for a second term. Listen to the NPR Politics Podcast every weekday. With more and more information coming at you all day, every day, it can be hard to know where to focus. The new Consider This newsletter from NPR can be that focus. Every weekday afternoon, we take one of the day's biggest stories and break it down in a simple, skimmable format so you can get a better grasp of one important topic and what it means for you in a couple of minutes. Sign up for free at npr.org slash consider this newsletter. This is Fresh Air. I'm TV critic David B. and Cooley. The Netflix anthology series Black Mirror hasn't presented any new episodes since 2019. But now it's back with a new season of five fresh episodes from writer-producer Charlie Brooker and company. They all premiered Thursday on Netflix, and I've seen them all. Which was a treat, because there haven't been any new Black Mirror episodes since before the pandemic, and even then, season five presented only three new episodes. But I don't mean to complain about either the infrequency or the relatively small portions dished out by this Netflix show. Because Black Mirror continues to be among the best anthology TV series ever made. Futuristic technology figures into many of the storylines, so it's part science fiction. But it's also wide-ranging enough to tap into other genres and styles. It's part Outer Limits, 
part Alfred Hitchcock Presents, part Twilight Zone, the classic one from Rod Serling, not the disappointing recent remake, and completely, delightfully entertaining. My challenge here is to convey how much I love this new season of Black Mirror without revealing any spoilers about the five individual installments. The show's executive producers, Charlie Brooker and Annabelle Jones, have crafted an environment in which, as with the best anthologies, anything can happen at any time. Characters don't have to live because they're not coming back for a second episode, so any suspense is real and earned. And Brooker, who wrote four of this season's episodes and co-wrote the fifth, has doubled down on the unpredictability across the board. This year's shows can begin with a comic tone but end darkly, or start off as one genre and lurch unexpectedly into another. And without fail, they're fun to watch, almost impossible to predict, and equally impossible to forget afterward. The first episode on this season's Netflix list is titled Joan is Awful. It stars Annie Murphy from Schitt's Creek as a woman named Joan who is, well, awful. We see her cold-bloodedly firing an employee at work, betraying her boyfriend by reconnecting with an old flame, then returning to her boyfriend for a quiet meal at home, which he's lovingly prepared, before settling down on the couch to watch some TV together. But because this is Black Mirror, the TV they're watching is a streaming service that looks almost exactly like Netflix, except it's called Streamberry and the title of one new offering on the scroll-down menu catches his eye. Annie Murphy plays Joan. Hamesh Patel, star of the movie Yesterday, plays her boyfriend. What do you want to watch? Oh, I'm easy. Let's see what's on Streamberry. All right. Um, oh, how about Sea of Tranquility? Uh, Eric said it blows. Oh, well, if Eric said it blows. Uh, okay. Uh, Lock Henry, the Scottish murder thing? I can't really do another true crime. I'm sorry, just okay, after okay. Gacy. Yeah. What about... Uh. <laughs> uh. <laughs> uh, oh, my God. Uh, <laughs> what? New drama, Joan is awful. Is that Selma Hayek? Uh, she even has your hair. <laughs> That's not my hair. Well, it's a lot like your hair. And she's even called Joan. Okay, what even is this show? No clue, but, uh, well, we're watching it. No, we're not watching Joan is Awful. Whatever the hell it is. Just hit play. Mm. Come on. Hit play. Once they do hit play, this episode of Black Mirror goes into unexpected territory and a very wild, technologically topical ride. Another episode, Demon 79, is a weird episode that's all the more charming for being so offbeat. Anjana Vossen, from Peacock's We Are Lady Parts, plays a meek employee at a department store who's visited by an apprentice demon. Sort of like the flip side of Clarence the Angel in It's a Wonderful Life. Only this demon has to persuade her to kill three people in as many days or the world will end. She tries to run from him, but he keeps popping in wherever she goes to continue their conversation. Papa Esiedu plays the fast-moving, faster-talking demon. Hey, to be honest, I don't want the apocalypse to come about any more than you do, so let's stop it happening, you and me. All we have to do is deliver three sacrifices in three days. It's only three killings. Like I said, animals don't count. You have to do humans, and there's got to be a cadence to it. One a day... <laughs> it's one kill a day. It, it's what? That is fewer people than die falling off ladders in the same time period. You'd be less lethal than a ladder. If I talk to you, you're real, so I'm not going to talk to you. Well, well, we started conversing already, so that ship is sailed. No, it hasn't. Oh, oh yes, it has. <laughs> right, don't worry, we're a team. I'm on your side here, you know. Now, come on, let's just get kill number one under your belt. Start racking them up. From there, this episode, too, goes to places that are not at all easily predicted. Brooker co-wrote Demon 79 with Bisha K. Ali, wrote all the others himself, and each installment is gloriously different. The episode Maisie Day is about paparazzi chasing an actress. Locke Henry 
a title, if you look closely, that was actually included in the Streamberry program menu during Joan is Awful, is about an old murder case in a small Scottish town. And Beyond the Sea, the most haunting of them all, stars Aaron Paul and Josh Hartnett as astronauts on a long, remote space mission. There's not a dud in the bunch. Joan is Awful and Beyond the Sea may be my favorites from this cycle, but I scarfed up and loved all five, and predict you will too. And when it comes to the imagination behind Black Mirror, that's about the only type of prediction that's safe to make. On the next Fresh Air, the black working class and their contributions to the labor force, from slavery to the formations of unions as we know them. Tanya Mosley talks with Blair Kelly, author of Black Folk, The Roots of the Black Working Class. We hope you can join us. Fresh Air's executive producer is Danny Miller. Our senior producer today is Heidi Saman. Our technical director is Andre Bentham, and our engineer today is Adam Staniszewski. Our interviews and reviews are produced and edited by Amy Sallett, Phyllis Myers, Sam Brigger, Lauren Krenzel, Teresa Madden, Anne-Marie Baldonado, Thea Challoner, Seth Kelly, and Susan Yakundi. Our digital media producer is Molly C.B. Nesper. For Terry Gross and Tanya Mosley, I'm David B. Cooley. On the Code Switch podcast, conversations about race don't start and stop with the news cycle. We know that race is always relevant, and we have new topics, new voices, and new stories for you every single week. Listen to the Code Switch podcast from NPR. What does it sound like to record an album inside a jail? On the documentary podcast, Track Change, you'll hear four men make music inside Richmond City Jail and hear how they're trying to break free from a cycle of addiction and incarceration. Been so long since I've been free. Listen to Track Change from Narratively and VPM, part of the NPR Network. Hey, it's Aisha Roscoe from NPR's Up First podcast. I'm one of thousands of NPR Network voices coming to you from over 200 local newsrooms across the country. We bring all Americans closer together through free and independent journalism, music, politics, culture, and so much more. The NPR Network. What you hear changes everything. Learn more at npr.org network.